Good to be with you this morning. I'd like to invite those who are participating in junior church to be dismissed at this time up through grade six. If you'd like your young one to be in an age-appropriate service, you're more than welcome to avail yourself of that. You're more than welcome to keep them here as well. Your choice, parents, what you would like to do. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Will you do that? And while you're doing that, let me remind you, and I do this from time to time, in, in the chair in front of you, you'll see a card that looks like this. It says, uh, uh, Together on the Journey Berean Baptist Church. And it is a, a guest card, a visitor card for you. If you're a guest here today, or if you've been here a while and you'd like to respond to us, you'd like to let us know a prayer request, uh, let us get acquainted with you and, and be connected with you, we'd love for you to use that card. Certainly if the Lord is working in your heart, uh, fill that out on the front, on the back, kind of indicate uh, where the Lord has worked in your heart uh, this uh, today or this week, and let us pray for you and help you. There's a lot of places where you can respond there if you'd like to get involved, and so just read that if you would, and if you've not picked one of these up, please fill that out. If you're a guest here today, uh, we'd like to have you join us midweek for midweek fellowship dinner, and the way that you do that for us to give you some tickets, just fill this out, hand that to uh, the guy at the welcome table, we'll make sure that you're, uh, you're connected. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. God's plans for a healthy church is our study. We are working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians. In particular, this morning's study, we come to a portion of the God's word that is very important. It always is important. I say that all the time because every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God is important for us and for our uh, encouragement, for our reproof, correction, instruction that we may be thoroughly furnished. And so this particular passage, of course, is... um, very important, serious study, uh, mature study. It is a brief chapter. It's only 13 verses long, uh, yet it's so loaded with pertinent information and really relevant themes, I think, as you'll see as we work our way through, uh, that we have to deal with it with some carefulness. And because it may be preventive purposes for some and corrective purposes for others, we're going to take our time with it. And so we'll do that for great benefit, I think, to our individual lives and certainly to the church corporately as well. If there's one way I think we could characterize our society in which we live today, we'd be characterized it as sexualized. I, I don't think I have to make an argument for you to, to agree with that. I say that because that seems to be the thing that dominates everything. Whether we want to or not, we know the intimate details of the intimate life of most of our stars of popular culture. Every product that's sold uh, has some overture in that area, if not a direct uh, connection to that area. Movies have to be carefully screened, even animated movies, which is why I'm so grateful for sites like Plugged In Online, which help us to be very discerning, uh, because movies have taken this topic and made it a matter of everyday routine. We're constantly having it propagated to us, the fact that any kind of activity like this, sexual activity, is just like eating and drinking. Uh, What's the big deal about it? C.S. Lewis had some observations about this topic from a series of radio broadcasts from the early 40s. Uh, that was adapted into the book we now know as Mere Christianity. He said this, quote, If anyone says that sex itself is bad, Christianity contradicts him at once. But of course, when people say sex is nothing to be ashamed of, they may mean the state into which our sexual instinct has now got is nothing to be ashamed of. If they mean that, I think that they're wrong. I think it is everything to be ashamed of. There's nothing to be ashamed of enjoying your food, There would be everything to be ashamed of if half the world made food the main interest of their lives and spent their time looking at pictures of food and dribbling and smacking their lips, end quote. 
We've fallen a long ways in the 70 plus years since C.S. Lewis penned that remark. We've come to the place where all kinds of things have become commonplace and it's a reason to have a group or to exist in a minority uh, with a problem with everyone else that doesn't share your same vice. This is the kind of society that threatens the purity of the church. It is difficult, it's always been, historically, whether you're talking about Israel or the first century New Testament church or uh, the church now, for God's people to exist, if you will, in an island, in a sea of immorality and not be affected by it. And that's precisely what occurs in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The Corinthian church uh, was born out of a sea of idolatry, which was connected closely in its worship with immorality and with drunkenness. And immorality had made its way into the church, and worse, the church had become tolerant of it. That's unfortunate, because as a result of coming to Christ and separating ourselves from the things of the world, one of the benefits is the shock value of sin. Coming to Christ and being separated uh, to an extent, and more and more as the days go along that you're born again, gives us a shock value. And I remind you, as we looked at Romans 16, perhaps you remember uh, this, Paul says this to them, and I think this is very important as it relates to the modern church. For the report of your obedience has reached to all, so there's a testimony that's certainly emanating out of this church in Rome. Therefore, because you've got this great testimony, um, your obedience, I'm rejoicing over you. And then he says, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. And I think that's a pretty important statement. He said, you're being obedient, and I'm thrilled about that. Now I want to insulate you all the more, he says, from the insidiousness of sin by being wise in the things that are good. So know that, act on that, talk about that, be a part of that, and be innocent in what is wicked. Akios is the word innocent. It's an adjective in the Greek. It means unmixed. It can refer to the processing of metals and an unmixed pure metal or the processing or perhaps of drink of, of uh, the fruit of the vine unmixed. But it is a word that talks about a real separation between anything that is impure and the element that's in mind. And Paul's idea, I think, in his mind is that the more we are aware and the more that we're wise about the conduct of the culture around us, the less the sin that's there will shock us. And that shock value is an important deterrent. But as you're already aware, sadly, unless you're paying very close attention, being innocent to what's evil is difficult to do in our society, and no doubt like it was in the Corinthian culture. And although I think, and it's really impossible to get to the point that nothing really shocks us anymore, um, I think just the opposite, I think that uh, the culture perhaps is not as corrupt as during Paul's time, as we've talked about, uh, many of the things that were part of Paul's normal life in Paul's time is st are still illegal, at least in the United States for the time. I think that uh, our culture's delivery system is able to communicate the many forms of immorality right into our smartphones. And so, although our culture perhaps in America is not as corrupt as Paul's, what we have is, uh, through unfiltered access, music and internet and movies communicate any and all forms of sexual immorality, whether they're legal or not. And so it continues on and, and on to the point where we can absorb it with an almost indifferent attitude. And really to combat that, it has to be a real Romans 12, one thing where you're renewing your mind, not being stamped in the image of the world, but being 
renewed in your mind from day to day. And just to foreshadow a little bit as we include really uh, this whole section that's going to talk about immorality. 1 Corinthians 5, we have a situation here of sexual immorality that was actually shocking to unbelievers. And now when the sin of the church gets to the point where it shocks the world, we've really got a problem. Now, of course, we're well aware of uh, the fact that the world watches the church very closely and uh, they're watching for mess-ups so they can criticize the church. We're we're aware of that and we're all too aware, of of course, of some sizable mess-ups by prominent people. But the problem actually gets much worse when the church won't recognize the issue and deal with it biblically. Inevitably, there's going to be some problems in the church. The real problem is is it doesn't shock the church anymore, and the church is not reacting like they should. And that's precisely what happened in Corinth. And like the modern church, it wasn't as if they didn't know what God's standards were. They knew. They knew because the Apostle Paul had written to them a previous time. Uh, Look ahead to verse 9, if you would. Um, He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. So this is referring to a letter that came earlier that we don't have, that Paul wrote to this Corinthian church. And he says, I did not at all mean with the immoral people of the world or with the covetous or swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, he says, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he's an immoral person, a covetous or an idolater or a viler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So, Paul had already written a letter to them. He knew there was some trouble in the church. He'd given them, he'd pinned them a letter. He told them what to do. They'd already heard from him. They had him as their teacher, which we know, for at least 18 months. From the beginning, he planted the church. 18 months, he stayed there with them. But in spite of all the good teaching and in spite of the witness of the Holy Spirit in their lives, because we're talking about believers here, uh, they had allowed immorality into the church. And their background before coming to faith was saturated with sexual immorality and and the saturated culture that they were living in had encroached, and they were having trouble discarding that lifestyle once they became believers. So Paul's being carried along by the Holy Spirit uh, to address this issue of purity in the church, and yet if the church was to be pure, they had to say goodbye to immorality. And in 1 Corinthians 6, 18, Paul puts it very simply. He says, flee immorality. Foigete, that's the verb flee. It's to run away, to flee quickly. It's present active imperative. And of course it's for a different study, but I think that is the main emphasis for individual purity. If you're having trouble with that, uh, this issue here that Paul is talking about in the Corinthian church certainly is applicable. Flee immorality. Depart from the situation, depart from the circumstances, depart from whatever it is that's creating that opportunity in your life to have immorality there or impurity of thought. But Paul says flee immorality in 1 Corinthians 6.18. It's going to be the present, continual response to temptations of immorality. That's it. Flee the area, run away. And that word uh, immorality is the word pornean. It is the word from which we get our word pornography. It is the word that's translated immorality and is the general word for all types of improper sexual relationships. Now, there are more specific words that describe certain behavior, but this word really can take in all improper sexual behavior. Run from immorality. Be actively running from all types of immorality, Paul says. Be far from it. And we certainly have that example in Joseph, of course, from Genesis 39, Potiphar's wife. You remember the story. He ran from temptation. Paul told the Ephesian church, Ephesians 5, 3, but immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. It's a basic, really, to any kind of effectiveness in ministry of Christ uh, the church, effectiveness in the church, that there be moral purity. 
And Joseph, of course, back to him, ultimately knew who he was sinning against. Uh, he said in Genesis 39.9, There's no one greater in this house than I, and he, as he refers to Potiphar, uh, has withheld nothing from me except you because you're his wife. Uh, how then could I do this great evil, now catch this, and sin against whom? Now, it was certainly going to be against Potiphar. It certainly would have been against Potiphar's wife. But ultimately, Joseph saw through all of that. And he knew that was all collateral damage, but the, the, the original sin was really against uh, a God. And so he said that. David, on the other hand, if you think about it, didn't run and flee, at least in this particular instance. He was involved in immorality with Bathsheba. 2 Samuel 11 details for that, for us all, the, the grievous details. There was much additional sin, tremendous sorrow connected to David's infraction. But after he was confronted by Nathan the prophet, he penned Psalm 51. And in Psalm 51, he cries out to the Lord and he says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. He's, you can just kind of see this. He's just under this intense conviction. He feels the weight of his transgression. He sees constantly what he's done, and yet he ultimately says this, against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. And although he'd sinned grievously against Bathsheba, against the kingdom, and there was a lot of collateral damage, he knew the sin was ultimately against the Lord. He understood it as breaking God's law, and God's laws are for our good. And David certainly vindicates that from the opposite side, doesn't he? That, our law, that God's laws are for our good and for, our pro, for us to prosper and for us to flourish. And, and God's laws are for our good. And he had the guilt and he had the regret all associated with the violating what God had designed for our good. But the biggest problem was his willful violation against God's law. And God had made his position on any kind of sexual impurity absolutely clear as he brought his people into the promised land. Uh, Deuteronomy 22 is a spot where he gave a number of circumstances that may come about in the lives of his people uh, the priests may have to judge these issues, so he gives the priests instructions on how to make sure uh, what they're judging is correct, how to come to the correct conclusion. And apart from all the deviant types of behavior he expressly forbid, he also made it clear in Deuteronomy 22 that any kind of sexual activity between a man and a woman before marriage was forbidden. And in the old economy, it was a cause for execution. So that's how serious God was about it. And it's not because God wants to make sure that no one has any fun. And it's not that God's this big cosmic killjoy. It's because that's the way God designed it so that men and women could have the fullest kind of blessing and the richest kind of blessed relationship. And of course, Deuteronomy 22 isn't isolated. You could look earlier at Exodus 20 and Leviticus and Proverbs, and, and you would see the same perspective, same attitude there as the Lord explains uh, the rules that govern men, mankind, ones that are not negotiable. And in the New Testament, you see the same perspective carried over into the church age. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, Paul sums it up. He says, therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality. Why is that, Paul? Well, he explained that just uh, two verses earlier. He says, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. So there you have both things. You have the internal motivation, which is you've died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. This is who you are. Recognize that. And then consider the members of your body dead to immorality. And then we saw earlier, flee immorality, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We have action associated with what the mindset needs to be. And those things are all very integral then in, as, as you govern your own life. 
Paul has laid down some basic feelings about that that come, of course, from the Holy Spirit for the faithful church in Thessalonica, and I think it's important to look at them. He says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is that you abstain from sexual immorality. And we went over this with the men at length early on in our men's discipleship groups as we've gone on our, on our men's retreats. And so the men, this is a kind of a repeat. But verse 4 says that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. So we've given you some instruction, Paul says earlier, you need to know how to possess your own vessel. And the vessel's just a figure of speech for your own body. You should know how to possess your own vessel in sanctification and honor. So there's an active involvement on our part as men and women to actively engage in how we're managing our own body because this is something that we can do. Not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who don't know God. So let's just make that clear, Paul says. That's not how you do it. Verse 6, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter. So there's this whole problem with immorality causing problems with someone else, see? Because there's always... Uh, partners connected to this, uh, because the Lord in, is the avenger of all these things, just as we have told you before, and Solomon warned you, and that interaction with somebody else may be a very bad example, it may be uh, causing someone who's a weaker brother to stumble, there's a whole lot of, a whole list of things we went through as we talked about it, but just that there's collateral damage, always connected with immorality, and so Paul says, just as we also told you before, and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification, so he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So the Bible, all the way through then, uh, is very clear about what God thinks regarding sexual immorality. And it's so serious that Paul approaches the problem in Corinth with a sincere focus and an intense focus, really. So Paul's going to have a lot more to say. And because this is a problem in the culture, we're going we're to see a whole bunch of places where he talks about it. And as we work our way through this letter, particularly as he begins to deal with marriage, we're going to see another address of the thing. But the idea is, is that it's the incompatibility of the Christian life with immorality. That just kind of rings through all of his teaching. And so we're going to deal with each of these passages accordingly. And because immorality uh, in, uh, in life was so prevalent in Paul's culture, we won't deal with every single instance now because we're going to get to them. Okay? Now... Paul's going to address this issue of purity. He tells the Corinthian church what to do. And again, that becomes a model, as we saw earlier, on what the church is to do. And what is the instruction for disciplining an immoral member of the body of Christ, an immoral Christian? That really becomes the subtopic for Paul as he addresses the issue, a real issue, in the Corinthian church. So read with me, if you will, in your open Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to read verses 1 through 13. <coughs> and I pardon, ask your pardon for taking so much time in the intro, but I think it's important to set the stage and we understand really where we are setting on a, a solid footing. I usually don't wait as long to read the passage, but uh, as is our habit, introducing these things, I think, and it was important uh, to do this early. Now look, if you would, at verse 1. We'll read to the end of the chapter, but we won't get to the end of the chapter, obviously. So let's just read it together. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles that someone has his father's wife. Verse 2, you've become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. Verse 3, for I, on my part, though absent in the body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. Verse 4, in the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, verse 5, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. 
Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? For seven, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Verse 8. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Verse 9. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. Verse 10. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world, or with the covetous and swindlers, or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. Verse 11, but actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a viler, or drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Verse 12, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those that are within the church? Verse 13, but those who are outside... God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Stop right there. Now look at back at verse 1, and let's kind of work our way, if we will, into the passage a little bit and kind of get our feet under us. It is actually, he says, reported that there is immorality among you. Now it's interesting to note that this problem, as with the problem of the disease of division, came to him by way of a report. Remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11, remember he says, For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now, whether it was Chloe's people that told him about the immorality or it was someone else that told him about it, it is, it does, it's not clear. But he says it's actually reported that there is immorality among you. So the idea is that this is a general and continuing report. So this is a continuing thing going on, on and on, uh, there with them, and it is just a continuing report coming to Paul. In a previous letter that Paul had written to them, which we don't have, he says, according to 1 Corinthians 5, 9, and we keep going back here because it's important, he says um, this, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. The problem was so bad, Paul says, that he had to write to them about it before and give them instructions on how to handle the situation in the church. And it was similar to the instructions he gave, gave in 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, which we're going to look at in just a minute, which just kind of gives the whole idea of what should be occurring. It's actually reported, he says, verse 1, that there is immorality among you. Now, it isn't possible to keep the church pure from this type of behavior and I think this is the first principle, general principle, we can pull from the passage. It's not possible to keep the church pure from this type of behavior if it doesn't know what's happening. And I think that's just obvious. Now, that's not a mandate to the church to get out their little Sherlock Holmes inspection, you know, magnifying glasses and make sure nobody has immorality in their life. Because I think the Lord makes it clear when it comes up. And then it's the idea that when it comes up, then it's dealt with in the appropriate manner. So... We have to watch, the church has to watch for that type of activity. That's Paul telling them, listen, the report came to me, this is what's going on. I already wrote to you about this because the report had come to me earlier, and I told you what you needed to do. And so you're not acting on it. And this is what's prompting Paul addressing this issue again. So uh, the church is to be concerned about it, concerned about preventing it. So Paul says it's commonly reported, it's the general and continuing report that there is immorality among you. And now, of course, it wouldn't seem as if that would be the desire of the church to be known as a church of immorality. But that's actually what's going on. And earlier they're known as a church of disunity, and now he says now you're also known as a church of immorality. But that was actually the deal. And not only that, Paul says, uh, in an immorality of a kind uh, as does not exist among Gentiles that someone has his father's wife. So the problem with, was an immorality that even shocked the unredeemed. And that whole father's wife thing, just so we can kind of get our terms together, that is probably a scriptural paraphrase for stepmom. 
And what was likely the case is that a man had been married and perhaps his wife had died and he had remarried. And then he has an older son who begins this relationship with a stepmom and that leads to a divorce and now they're together and it's an ongoing relationship. Now, we won't go into depth about that because Paul doesn't. They know who this is and they know what's going on. And it appears to be that the man spoken about here having his relationship is a believer and the woman doesn't appear to be a believer. And I'll show you some proof of that here in just a minute. But um, I think that's actually the issue. And we can get that sense when we see how Paul instructs the church to deal with the situation. He tells the church to put the individual man out, but he doesn't say anything about the woman. And then he says, I'm not supposed to judge outsiders. God's going to do that. So I think the idea there is, is that relationship is not only an unbiblical immorality, but it also is a relationship that is with someone who's not saved. So that's the idea. And we'll get to that in just a second. But now, if you think about, and once again, I'm not going to go into all these uh, individual passages, as I said, just because I want to be sensitive to the fact that there are a variety of ages and maturities here in, uh, in the church this morning. And so I would just say in Leviticus 18, there's all kinds of relationships covered within families. And I'd refer you to those passages to really fill out your understanding of what the Lord requires amongst uh, family members. And he does, he's very specific about it. And it's not necessarily fun to read. And usually when people are reading through their Bible on, you know, on a day-to-day basis, they get Leviticus and they kind of peter out about right there because it's just hard to read. But I would say that those things are there so that the Lord would let us understand what's expected uh, with a fa- within a family relationship. So here the Corinthian assembly. This is a terrible, flagrant rejection of the simple commands of God. And so Paul has to deal with it. And sin has taken over this guy's life, no doubt. He's now living in an improper relationship with this unsaved woman. And uh, it's his father's former wife. And the church is tolerating it. And it wasn't so much the, the sin that shocked Paul as it was the church's toleration of it. Okay? So this is the thing he was having the most trouble with. Now look at verse 2, if you would. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. And this whole arrogant idea, this whole arrogant issue, the pride issue is just popping up again. And he's dealt with it already, and it's at work in this situation. And, you know, you can apply a myriad of situations perhaps that are going on here. Perhaps they really thought it was really cosmopolitan, very progressive, very free in Christ to just go ahead and let this couple remain inside the church. And perhaps they thought they were very spiritual uh, with that or just God will forgive everything so we're not going to worry about it. Uh, Or maybe they were just proud of how gracious and kind and tolerant they were, you know, open doors, open minds, that kind of thing. You know, or, or maybe they were just, you know, shoving Paul off with a shoulder. Uh, because he'd already given them some instructions on what to do in the previous letter, and they're just like, you know, don't worry about it, Paul. We're going to take care of it. We're not interested in what you want us to do. A number of different ways it could manifest itself. I don't think any individual one is important. We just know there was pride involved there, and the pride is present, active, indicative. So it's best to see this then as a continuing in your arrogance. So you have this, you've become arrogant, really isn't the best translation. I think it's, you have continued in your arrogance, really I think is the Greek, the best way the Greek is expressing it. It's best to see it's an ongoing state of affairs. And this is not hard to see because Paul's transitioning right from an arrogance before into an arrogance here in this situation. Paul says, instead of continuing with this pride, which is your undoing, you should have mourned. And there is that first response that we should have seen. Paul says, listen, you have a continuing issue of pride. It's manifesting itself in this area. And instead, you should have mourned. Mourning was the proper action. Pentheo is the Greek verb. It's it's one of the words associated with what happens at a funeral. Uh, So Paul says, instead of standing there being proud about your situation, you should have been on your face on the ground weeping. Your Your heart should have been grieving because of what's happening in the church. 
And maybe that's something the modern church has lost. In some ways, some churches compare well uh, with the situation in Corinth. Uh, maybe uh, liturgical denominations, Protestant denominations, some of them perhaps don't realize it, but in adopting a worldly view uh, concerning gross immorality by ordaining uh, immoral, actively immoral people, accepting immorality, they really could use a word from Paul here. That instead of being proud and thinking you're so open and so, so cosmopolitan, perhaps they could understand the word from Paul that you, haven't, you, you were pri- you're prideful, but you should have mourned instead. And I really think that when the church gets to the place where it doesn't mourn over sin, it's really on its way out. Certainly in effectiveness, maybe not in numbers, but you're right on the edge of disaster. And and when we cease to be shocked by sin, we really lost our defense. And it's always a danger to be uh, no longer shocked, which is why I warned, made the warning earlier that it's important to insulate ourselves, as Paul said in Romans 16, 19, uh, from the things that are wicked, so that it is a shock value when you see it and you, you realize this isn't what should be going on. I was talking to someone this week, and, and uh, in the conversation, just as an illustration of this whole thing, perhaps as a blind spot of the church, there's a veiled type of criticism for churches that talk about sin and confront issues. And the, the way the conversation went, it really was, um, when you deal with people, when you deal with sin issues in people, that's somehow an incorrect approach to doing church. Somehow you're much more spiritual if you don't do those things, and perhaps, and really this is a quote, that's the reason why some churches stay small, because they deal with these issues, and they shouldn't, and they should be way more open uh, in, in things like this. And, and it's growing, you know, as if somehow growing large uh, by ignoring a biblical responsibility was a good thing. And I didn't say that, but it's really just, it just confirmed to me again, this really type of blind spot in, true, in the modern church, just, just like it was a blind spot in the first century church in, in Corinth. It's as if we are here, you know, kind of on Sunday just to give a Sunday morning sermonette, you know, and have everybody, you know, feel good and give a little sound bite and help the congregation feel better, a few videos, a few cliches, you know, worn out expressions so you feel good and then you go. See, that's not what we're about, but I think people would like the church to be about that and so they can come and feel okay about themselves when they go. And I, and I think that you have that in the modern church. I think you had it in the Corinthian church. And if, you know, if we're, you know... Uh, and I know that you know this, and once again, I'm just kind of giving some, some illustrations. And once again, as I say to you, as I've said to you from the beginning of this, of this study in 1 Corinthians, there are many applications we won't have time to get to, okay? They spread out so far, so fast. There's so much here. So realize, continue your study, okay? If you've got some questions, you're certainly welcome to give them to me. We'll have a Q&A session coming up soon. But if you just study. You know, continue to, to cross-reference. You'll see all these connections here, and I can't by any stretch connect to them all. But I know that you know this, and, and you've begun to understand certainly the one another's in Scripture. And if you've been through RB, the church class, we go through that section of the one another's, that you have responsibility wherever it says one another in the church, that's your responsibility to do that. And, uh, you know, this isn't just a Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday night operation, okay? We're here to get involved in your lives, uh, to bear one another's burdens, to confess to one another, to make sure that the church is what God intended it to be, and that involves purity. And as John is writing, he's carried along by the Holy Spirit in the book of Revelation. And perhaps you remember this as we went through it. But uh, uh, this book has its own outline, of course, the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which are to come. And Jesus addresses the seven churches, and that would be the things which are. And the modern church age, John's time, our time. And in Revelation chapter 2, verse 18, it's very important because it connects to both the ancient church and the modern-day church and what could be going on there. He says, to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the Son of God who has eyes like the flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this, 
I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. And remember, when we studied this a number of years ago, we talked about the fact that this is, uh, this is the things which are, this is John's time, the church age, our time, and these samples, these seven churches, are just samples of how churches have been all along and still are. And so the Corinthian church was like this. We know modern churches are like this. And so that's the issue. And so he says then in verse 20, but I have this against you that you tolerate this woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bond servants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Verse 21, I gave her time to repent and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds, of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I'll give to each one of you according to your deeds. Now, just kind of a, to kind of comment on that, you know, you know you have a lot of things going on. You can kind of see Jesus say that to the church. You know, your deeds, your love, your faith, your service, perseverance, that your deeds of late are greater than the first. There's a lot of good things happening in the church. You're even growing. But there's a problem. There's immorality in the church. And you've got somebody there who's involved in it, and others are getting involved in it, and that has to stop. And then verse 20 says, but I have this against you, that you tolerate this woman Jezebel. And that of course, name is a name that we understand from the Old Testament and connect to wickedness. So this is an actual real person in the church. She's just using the name Jezebel, which really defines for us the type of character we're talking about. And then he says this. He says, uh, you know, uh, Jesus says to the church, you shouldn't be doing that. And he says, you know, I'm going to have to come and it's not going to be good. And I know that flies in the face of the modern church, really. And even some evangelical churches. But we really, really can't read Paul's instruction or John's instruction without coming away with the understanding that there's really no place for the tolerance of sin inside the church. I think that's Paul's whole issue as he works his way through. And we're talking about that in the lives of believers, okay? In the lives of believers inside the church. We're not talking about non-believers, we're talking about believers. And we're going to get to this portion soon again, but I just keep coming back to it because Paul makes it clear, um, and this is where the church, I think, messes up as it relates to uh, modern problems inside our culture and whether uh, those folks feel like they can come if the Holy Spirit's drawing them. He says, I, I don't mean with the immoral people of the world. Okay, I'm, I'm not talking about the unsaved people that you have to judge or with the covetous swindlers, idolaters, for then you'd have to go out of the world. But he says, actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he's an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Paul says. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? And once again, here's that indication that the woman in this, uh, in question here, along with this man, is probably not a believer. And that's why Paul says that. Do, not, do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside God judges? And so the whole idea then is, I think that the, Paul's emphasis, the church has to be pure. And the job and the responsibility of the church is not just to go and attend and sit there and watch what happens, but to seek out the purity of the church. Again, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3, but immorality or impurity or greed must not even be named among you, speaking of believers, okay, as it's proper among saints, and there must be no filthiness and no silly talk. So not just immorality and impurity, but no filthiness and no, sil no, no silly talk, no filthy jokes, no silly t uh, ridiculous stuff, no coarse jesting, which are not fitting. He said, listen, these things don't belong inside the church, but rather giving of thanks, for this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So that's speaking again of unbelievers. You're acting like unbelievers, and unbelievers don't have an inheritance. 
Let no one deceive you with empty words. Don't let anybody tell you anything else about it. Because this is how it really is, Paul says. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Once again, speaking of unbelievers. Don't be like what's going on there. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness. That's how you used to live before you were redeemed. That's described your life. But now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Not, impure, not impurity, not covetousness, not, not idolatry, not all of those things. See? Filthy jokes, coarse jesting, all those kind of things. But goodness, righteousness, and truth. Trying to learn what's pleasing to the Lord. So seeking the word, finding out what it is, uh, lighting your life up with that mirror of the word, beginning to let the Lord do his work inside of your heart, and trying to learn what's pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. Here it is. But even rebuke them. Present active imperative verb. El enco. Rebuke them. It means to correct them, to tell the fault with a view to a change, to make it right. It means to correct certainly falls to the pastor to have to do this when necessary, according to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. That was Paul's direct command to Timothy. But here in Ephesians, there's this broader application to the church. So if the idea then is, if you know somebody in immorality, and this is talking about believers, it is your responsibility as a Christian before God to go to the individual. If they don't hear you, to take a witness. And if they don't hear them, to bring it to the church leaders. This is for the purity of the church, see? The responsibility belongs to you. And Paul tells the Corinthians and us, you should mourn in that process. As Paul speaks, Paul speaks to the church in Thessalonica, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, he says, For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. It makes it more broad here, more sinful behavior or unruliness that has to be addressed. He says this, When we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone's not willing to work, then he's not to eat either. Paul says, listen, we just made this clear when we were with you, you understand this. And Paul says, I gave you that example of what hard work looked like amongst you. And I didn't even take any, anything from you, he says. But this is what you're supposed to do. And then he says, for we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now, such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus. So that's as strong as it can be. I'm commanding you, Paul, and exhorting you as it relates to your relationship to Christ. Okay. Paul takes that authority and says this, I command you, exhort you in the Lord Jesus Christ to work out, work in quiet fashion, eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. So if you're already doing that, this isn't for you, Paul says. If your phone's not ringing, then you don't have to worry about it. Okay? Just keep doing well. Just keep doing what you're supposed to be doing. If anyone does not obey our instructions in this letter, take special note of that person. Do not associate with him so that he'll be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So once again, same exact idea, isn't it? That part of the church's responsibility, not just the overseers, but the church's responsibility, is to be watching and help and come alongside and say, listen, this is not what you're supposed to do. But if they won't hear, there's a disassociation. So this is not isolated here in Corinth. This is widespread amongst the churches. And it's just so foreign to the church anymore. And perhaps it even falls hard on your ears. Because we're so used to equating tolerance of sin with spirituality. We think that that's what we're supposed to do. We, the world expects us to be very tolerant. And yet it's not in the same context. But inside the church, we equate that with spirituality. And that is not what Paul says over and over again. And this is serious business with Paul. And so in verse 2, he gives them the proper attitude about unrepentant sin. And that's not pride, it's mourning. And then he gives them the appropriate action for unrepentant sin in the church. 
And here it is. He says, the proper, the proper action is to remove them from your midst. Look at verse 2. You've become arrogant, or you've continued in your arrogancy, and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. You were mourning, and you understood, if you were in mourning, you would have understood what needed to happen. And Paul is just really summarizing excommunication. Paul says you need to get that person out of the church. Now Paul is assuming that they're going to reject this idea in their pride and their arrogance, okay? Because, and I think that's a, a reasonable assumption on Paul's part. They're just going to reject, he's already written them a letter, and they didn't do anything, and he's written, writing them a second letter, and he's coming off now just the very previous paragraph. He says, listen, do I come to you with a rod or with gentleness? You decide. And then he comes right into this issue. He says, listen, this is the second time I've written to you about this, and I've already judged this being apart from you and together with you just in spirit that this person has to be put out of the church. So he's assuming in their pride and arrogance they're going to reject it. And they will perhaps, they're going to perhaps say this, and maybe this rings in your ears, you've heard this. No, 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 what he really needs now is the church. He really needs the church right now, see. But that isn't Paul's issue, is it? The issue is the church, not the needs of this unrepentant individual, do you see? And that's an important distinction to make. There's no question that this individual here in Corinth needs to be in the Word. There's no question, okay? There isn't any question that he needs to rein his life in. The problem is that he won't, see? And he won't because there hasn't been the proper steps taken so that he understands how serious his infraction really is. The issue is the church and the purity of the church. And if he won't repent, then he doesn't do the church a bit of good because he just brings about impurity over and over. Discipline is a part of the responsibility of the church. He's to be excommunicated, Paul says, put out. That's discipline. Now, we're almost out of time, and what I want to do before we go is just do a little footnote here and really kind of summarize what Paul's referring to, and these are the words of Jesus to the apostles, and this process. And that's found in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, and you're welcome to turn there. I'll also put it on the screen. As Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he's talking about future things, things that will be uh, trouble for the church and things that will be trouble for their ministry, he says this. He just gives this general overview <coughs> with some specifics that are going to show them how to go about this. He says this, verse 15 of Matthew 18. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. Stop right there. First thing I want you to see is this. This is an alleged sin issue, okay? Chapter and verse, in other words. Do you understand? This is not a preference issue. This is not what you think should happen issue. This is not a how I think you should live your life issue. Those issues are discipleship issues, okay? So when you're in a one-on-one -on -one discipleship with a new believer or a believer who's been a believer for a while but wants to learn more about the ways of Christ, that's your opportunity to say, in my own life, this is what we do and what we don't do. And the reasons why we do those things are blank, 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 blank. Do you see? And that's the application for what I think is good and what my preferences are and what I exclude from my life and all of those things so that we can walk in circumspect manner with the Lord. And those vary by believer. And there certainly is a freedom in Christ issue that is applied there. Okay? And so you get an, an opportunity to build into somebody's life. This is not that. Okay? 
This is a chapter and verse, sin issue, where is it found? This is what it appears to me that you're doing or not doing. Now, in the course of pastoring, sadly, I've had to proceed through the steps we're going to listen. We're going to listen, list here. And I've also had a lot of opportunities where the first step was sufficient. And I just remember this one time in South Florida where we had a young couple in the church with just a couple little guys. And the dad, who was a friend of mine, was having some trouble not drinking and not womanizing, to, to be as clear as possible. And I remember one time I was on my day off, I was with my family at home, and I got a phone call from his wife, and she said, this person is in a bar, I know that he's there at the bar, I saw his car there, and um, we, she and I both knew what was going on, Laura was aware of this whole thing. So I hopped in my car, and I drove over to the bar, and I go walking in. And man, you could have heard a pin drop when he turned around and looked at me. And of course, he was in the course of interacting with a female who wasn't his wife, and I put my arm around him, and I said, can we talk real quickly? And he'd had too much to drink already, but I just asked the Lord to help him remember, and we were able to have a, a long talk, and I was able to kind of just sit there with him at a private table and just explain to him the sin issue and my grieving over it and what it was going to lead to. And I got to say, now that couple has four almost grown boys, and they live in another place now, and they flour they're flourishing. And so the Lord in his graciousness helped that individual to hear the, the chapter and verse and put it together and realize where his life was heading and he was able to, by the Lord's grace, get on track. And so that's the idea. It's a sorrow, a grieving of what's going on, a going and saying, okay, this is the issue, this is where you, the infraction is, and this is what needs to happen, and it's my desire for you to do this. Um, I'm, I'm so passionate about this, and this needs, to, this needs to occur because you're headed for a wreck. Now look at verse 16. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. Now I want to clarify another thing. These are witnesses of the sin issue. These are not witnesses that you've informed of the sin issue. Understand? And that's a big difference, because if they're not witnesses of the sin issue, and you inform them of the alleged sin issue, what's that called? Gossip. And that's a pretty important step because the church seems to get that all out of whack they think oh well i'll just get three or four other people so they can hear what's going on that's not what's supposed to be happening because remember this is an alleged sin issue from your perspective okay and so these are people who have been connected with this sin issue and so they come along and they confirm what's been going on the sin issue the chapter and verse and what needs to happen and they're grieving over it and they love the person and they want to see him re restored and so it's by the mouth of more than one Maybe the, the hearing can be opened, the, whole, the Holy Spirit will open the heart, and they'll turn from those things. Now, verse 17 says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. So, uh, it's brought before the elders, the elders tell the church, and the idea then is that the combined witness of a grieving church, okay, everybody understands what's going on. So, maybe you don't see this person for a while, and you don't know what's going on, and you're thinking, well, maybe we just, he just needs the church, or she just needs the church, and you know, come on in, and make sure you come, and you don't understand what's going on. So, the church is informed. They understand the whole sin issue that's connected to it, and then by the combined witness of a grieving church, which is really what Paul's saying, you should have grieved, all of you should have been grieving, then maybe they'll hear, and that's the idea. It may make the difference. And then this last part, it says, if he refuses to listen even to the church, 
Let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. And that's what Paul's telling the Corinthian church. This is the step we're at now, see. I've already decided, he said. I'm, I, I've confirmed that this is what's supposed to happen. And unfortunately, I've had to deal with a few of these cases over the years. One of the individuals, again, down in South Florida, who was a very dear friend of mine, a fishing partner and a golfing partner and all kinds of things, decided he was going to leave his own wife and, and be joined to a wife of somebody else inside the church. And I've never in my whole entire ministry life been so overwhelmed with grief and sorrow as when that occurred. And you can bet that I was, when that occurred, I was the first one to come over to his office and ask him for a few minutes to talk with him and, and cry about the whole thing and just be so broken about it. And yet he wouldn't hear. And so we had to tell, and obviously a few other people, more than a few, understood what was going on and they all went together with me and he basically told us to get out and wasn't interested and so we told the church. And so the combined grieving church was a witness for this person and he wouldn't hear and so we put him out. And after we put him out, he sued me and had me come into court for a deposition, a defamation of character. And that's how it goes sometimes. And that course was thrown out because the church operates within biblical rules and as he came into membership he understood that and so there was a knowledge there of what was expected. And so, but it didn't help me any and I, lots of nights I lost sleep and, and that's not fun to go down to a court in downtown Miami and be deposed by ungodly attorneys who are representing a rich ungodly man. But that's how it goes sometimes and that's what had to happen. I, I'll tell you that the end result of this person's life is nowhere near the end result of the first person's life. His life's a wreck. He's lost his kids and his business. And of course, if you spoke with him, he would think everything's great. But it isn't great. And so that's really how that process goes. And sometimes it's a very positive response. Sometimes it happens partway through. Sometimes it happens at the beginning. Sometimes it happens at the very end with a whole church, grieving church, helping. And sometimes it doesn't happen, at least now. And so there's now there's this long line of hope that I have connected to this individual. And I pray for him from time to time. And I hope that at some point, the Lord will be able to get through to him through someone. And so when the Lord gives these instructions to tell the church, this is not a, this is not a fun issue. This, nobody wants to do this. Nobody wants to be a part of being the first person who goes to this immoral person and says, listen, I notice this is going on in your life, and it grieves me. It's, it's, you're headed for a disaster, and please turn, and all this. Nobody's saying this is fun. Nobody's saying, hey, you're going to want to do this. Nobody's saying that um, it's part of the one another's that's enjoyable. It's not as, certainly not as enjoyable as praying for one another or confessing your sins to one another. It's much more enjoyable to do that. It's much more enjoyable to have one-on-one -on -one with a brother and sharpening iron and, and discipling each other and helping each other through difficult times. That's much more enjoyable, okay? But this is still part of the idea of what has to happen in the church that Paul's making sure the Corinthian church knows they've ignored and now the results now are just your testimony of your church, he says, is just that there's immorality there and you're just a prideful bunch of disunified people. See? So this idea then, as Paul says, you can go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 2. He says he should have been removed from your midst. The idea there is he's acting like an unsaved person. He won't submit to the elders. He won't submit to the church. So if, if he's acting like that, then the idea is just treat him that way. See? Like a, a Gentile, of course, Matthew 18, 17 says, like an, inch, uh, like an unredeemed person, like a tax collector. And, and you have to remember when they say tax collector, 
the tax collectors in the Bible were different than tax collectors today. If you, if, you know, if you happen to work for the IRS, you're probably a great person. I'm not saying anything about that, okay? Unless you're lowest learner, okay? And if you're lowest learner, perhaps you fit the profile perfectly. But, you know, the first, first century tax collectors took a big cut. So they, they charged more and took a big cut for themselves, very wealthy, and so they were crooks. And so the Lord just uses this as an illustration, okay? Because a lifestyle of just being a crook and ripping people off obviously shows that you're not a believer, just like referring to you as a Gentile, an unsaved person, okay? But the idea is then when you put the person out, you treat them like an, an evangelization project. That's the idea. Because they're acting like an unredeemed, in an unredeemed manner. So the Word of God is very clear then about the approach that's to be made. And he says to them, you should not be just going along saying, you know, isn't our church great? You know, look how accommodating we are. Look how, you know, forgiving we are. We just, you know, want, they need the church right now. All that stuff, you know, we don't need your involvement here, Paul. We got this handled. We know what to do, okay? Whatever it was they were saying. And, you know, I think that you can, as you think about this whole situation, you can imagine how many churches are in this very identical situation even right now. They're saying, boy, the church is growing, God's blessing, we're doing this, we're doing that, you know, the gifts of God are all here, and there's wonderful things are happening, great worship, all that kind of stuff. And if Paul were around, he would say, yeah, and there's immorality in your congregation, and there's immorality in your church, and, and, and there you go, Paul says, puffed up, you know, waltzing along like some kind of spiritual bliss or whatever, and, and you're not even dealing with a cancer that threatens to destroy the internal work of your church, take away the power of the church in its ministry, and the cumulative witness of everyone in it. And that's not uncommon. It's going on, I'm sure, all the time. And it wasn't just Corinth. It was happening, as we saw, in other first century churches and many other places, and it continues to happen today. So this is the obligation of every believer. This is Paul's emphasis as he starts just the first two verses here. We get the idea of what needs to happen. Now he's going to explain why that needs to happen and how that's supposed to happen here in the verses to come. And, uh, and once again, obligating every believer to being involved at some, in some extent as the Lord makes this visible uh, in this process. Next time we're going to start with verse 3, we'll get to the pattern that Paul's going to use, and it's going to help us understand how to go about it and how Paul has understood it to be in the church. And I, that, that will be beneficial, I think, to us, both preventively and maybe curative, whatever the issue may be. All right, let's close in a word of prayer. A heavy message, no doubt. First Corinthians and Second Corinthians tend to be that way. They have their bright spots, and we're going to have some wonderful times with those as well. And, I, and I, I wouldn't say that, beloved, this is necessarily not a bright spot. I think it's super important. And if the purity of the church is important, which it is to the Lord, then it should be then important to us and maybe a molding of our thinking at how, what needs to happen and perhaps how that's applied to the modern church in light of all the things that the culture forces us or wants to force us to accept inside. So uh, may the Lord give you wisdom as you process all of that. Let's, let's bow. Lord, I thank you today for an opportunity to be in your word. We love your word. We love to go through it verse by verse. You bring us to the places we need to be, when we need to be there. And Lord, you also know all the situations that are connected to your church everywhere. As your son, as Revelation says, tends to the wicks and trims them and makes them burn brightly, we know that he is aware and grieved when, this, when uh, immorality is in the church and when sin is in the church, as it's described here for us, that he wishes uh, for that to be changed. He told us how to go about it. And Lord, I pray that we'll just begin to process all of that. We'll also understand how to deal with our culture. Perhaps it's confusing to some to figure out, okay, what should we accept? What should we not accept? How is it supposed to go? And Lord, I pray that you continue to do your work in application 
uh, through your word as it continues to do its work in us, in our own hearts, not just in our minds, but working its way out into how we live. Thank you for the fellowship of the saints. Thank you for the blessing of Marianne coming to faith, Janine's mom. So overwhelmed with your great mercy and your the wonderful nature that it's not your will that any parish would all come to the knowledge of salvation and the prayers of the church and joining together with one purpose. And Lord, I pray that we'll continue to see that be the issue and pray diligently for all of our loved ones who are not reconciled to you. Thank you that she'll spend eternity with you. And Father, I pray that as we go forward uh, today with evening service and and Wednesday night, that all those things will be, as our teachers teach, as those who lead Awana lead, as the little ones come, that it will be about all that process of bringing some to faith and some in discipleship and some to maturity and some to commitment to ministry and just continue to do your work among us. Raise up as we have been instructed to pray workers for the harvest because the harvest is, is white and the workers are few. So I pray for us at Berea that you'll continue to raise up workers for the harvest, that those who are not involved uh, here that will become involved. Find out what needs to be done and be doing it. We might be able to function in a way that's fully filled out every joint supplies, as Ephesians 4 tells us. Lord, we are grateful today for your love for us, for your salvation, for our uh, opportunity to grow more like you each day. Thank you for the grace that we stand in, that in, in times when we fail, you have already forgiven our sin, washed it away, has separated us from us as far as the east is from the west, and there's nothing we can do to be brought out of this grace in which we stand. We rejoice in that too, Father. Help us be gracious and great, grateful people. We praise today in Jesus' name. Amen.